Welcome to SB&M is Here, the State Bar of New Mexico's official podcast. In this series, we'll discuss topics such as professional development, tools of the legal trade, and mental and professional well-being. Connecting the legal community across New Mexico, SB&M is here. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SB&M is Here. This is Morgan Pettit, the Member Services Manager and Podcast Producer for the State Bar. I'm very excited for our second episode for the 2021 season. We are lucky enough to continue to steal some of the judiciary members' time. And on this episode, we'll be hearing from Judge Jane Levy of the Second Judicial Court. And just a reminder, the goal of the 2021 podcast season is to focus on hearing specifically from the judiciary. And that means we want to hear from different judicial members from all across the state. So to our members who are listening in the North, South, East, West, really everyone outside the Rio Grande Corridor, pretty, pretty please <laughs> feel free to reach out to me uh, to learn how we can make sure your district is represented on the airwaves. With that, I'm going to hand it over to Lauren Riley. Lauren Riley is a member of the Family Law Section and is currently serving as the YLD ABA District Representative. Take it away, Lauren. Thank you, Morgan. I'm here with Judge Levy today, who was appointed to the Family Court Division of the Second Judicial District Court in 2016. She's one of three Family Court Division judges in Bernalillo County. Prior to her appointment, she was the managing partner at Gear Whistle, Whistle and Levy, where she has practiced family law. And for the seven years leading up to her appointment, she worked primarily as a guardian ad litem. She has both her Juris Doctorate and Master's degree in Counseling and Psychology from Lewis and Clark. Uh, Judge Levy co-chairs and chairs many different programs with the uh, Second Judicial District Court and the Supreme Court and is very involved in the legal community. In fact, just this weekend, she helped coach the mock trial team for the law school when they scrimmage Old Miss, which is one of the benefits of COVID to be able to do that virtually. So thank you, Judge Levy, for being here with us today. Thank you, Lauren. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking. Perfect. So, you know, the people want to know some important things, and we got to start with what are you watching on Netflix right now? <laughs> so, um, am I watching on Netflix? So, I um, fell into Lupin, the f- sort of French um, um, mystery show, and uh-huh. it was like sort of the Sherlock Holmes, and that was fantastic. Um, I also watch garbage on Netflix. Um, so like, um, see, I was watching, um, well, I don't know if you've heard of Lucifer. It's like this, um, the devil that solves crimes. So yes. yeah, I, um, was watching that and then I ran out of those. And so now I'm watching I zombie, which is the zombie that solves crimes. <laughs> so Really, so crimes is yes, perfect. Well, those sound great. Well, yeah. I will have to check them out. And uh, what is the last book that you read? The last book that I read. Um, so I think trying to think of because I'm in the middle of like eight different books. Um, the last book that I read was oh, um, it was um, Anna Karenina, and I shouldn't give myself credit for that because it took seven years. So oh my goodness. <laughs> this sort of okay. a pick up, put down. So you're done with it now. <laughs> but I am done. Yeah, Congratulations. It's a terrible thing with the train. I don't want to spoil it. But <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Well, um, 
let's move on to some more actual legal questions, but that are more personally related. And, you know, one thing that we've been focusing on this year is wellness. Of course, there's been lots of challenges for everyone with COVID. Do you have any wellness practices that you um, focus on or any advice for attorneys that might be struggling? So I think that um, for me, part of um, staying healthy is and well is one and the same, which is um, you know, exercising, honestly, I think when, um, I go hiking every weekend, it's my time. I don't answer texts. I don't deal with the world around me. It's just me hiking. Um, and I run and I walk and do things like that. But I really think that the opportunity to carve out time, I know we are all extremely busy. And I think part of what you always need to remember is that in order to take care of all the people around us, our clients, our children, everybody, you have to be able to take care of yourself. And if you don't, that unhealthy way of being will manifest itself and, and it just gets harder and harder to lift everybody else up. So I do carve out time and it's my precious time and I don't let anybody mess with it. <laughs> so That's great. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Definitely the fresh air and getting out there is important. Um, especially in our stressful world of family law. Mm -hmm. So what advice would you give to students or young lawyers that are considering entering the field of family law? What I would say is please do. Um, I know that family law is oftentimes um, something that when I talk to attorneys that don't practice it, they say, yeah, I took one case, it was terrible and I'll never do it again. Um, I think that's probably the way um, you feel when it's your first case in any situation. And I think that family law is very intimate. It's not, um, you know, you're not dealing with somebody's um, business and acquisition situation. You're not dealing with, um, even some torts can be very personal, but this is really never a situation where it is at an arm's length. Folks are dealing with how am I going to live um, when am I going to see my kids? Are my children being hurt by this? Am I going to be able to survive financially? I think the, um, it is really, really raw. But at the same time, there is no other law that I know of where we make a difference to somebody's life beginning and end. And I think that that is really important. I think that is one of those things that um, when you enter family law, yes, law, rules, all of that applies, but you're looking at a specific situation and trying to assist those folks. And our day is never the same. And you never know what it's going to be like. I think, I don't know about you, Lauren, but there are days where I'm like, well, this is my schedule. These are the hearings that I have. And you're a fool if you think that your day is going to be what you think it is, because it's never like that. So I Definitely. just think that you don't get bored. <laughs> yes. And I think one of the areas I love so much about family law is that we touch on every aspect of law and in creating these yeah. solutions for people. So not only do we learn about family law, but we do business law and, you know, different, different things. So it's always a variety. Oh yeah. You got to know taxes. You got to know, I mean, this, it is, it is as close as knowing everything that you'll have other than when you took the bar. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you got to know criminal, you got to know everything. So yeah, I think it really is. I think it's, it's a great, um, it's a great way to practice. Definitely. So obviously now you're a judge and it's been a while since you have practiced law. What do you miss most about practicing law as an attorney versus as a judge? 
I miss investigating things. Um, (laughs) I can't do anything. And it feels like that's probably why I watch a lot of crime shows (laughs) because it's like I get to investigate. I miss rolling up my sleeves and figuring out who is this? What is that? What are they, you know, posting this and that? I can't do any of those things. So I really miss that. The other thing I miss is um, really being able to develop a good, cross-examination. Those were my favorite. And, you know, you can't cross-examine anybody as a judge. Um, so I do, I miss that. I miss the art of that. Yeah. Those are the fun ones when it, when it goes well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, definitely. So we're going to take a quick break here. And after we come back, we're going to get to more family law specific questions. So let's move now to these family law specific questions. Judge Levy, when you're approaching a case as a judge, what would you say your overall approach to a case is? So what I like to do is um, prepare. I think every single case that we have is going to be very different. The factors are different. And so it is our job, I think, as lawyers and judges to um, look at the case from the start through where we are and assess what are the issues, what needs to be addressed, and how do I get you um, as the attorneys and clients to the finish line, whatever that is, what does that look like? So those are, those are the questions. Prepare, ask the right questions. What do I need to know? How can I help? What are they asking for? And how do we get to that finish line? Because that's really how you get people through the process. The best is to move it along. Mm-hmm. So when you say prepare, does that mean just on a practical level for, for us attorneys, that means you're reviewing all the pleadings, you're really looking at in detail ahead of time, what are we asking for? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think, so here's one of the areas that I think is important is that, you know, most of your judges, I think around the state, but certainly, you know, we, we prepare, we look through what is filed. Um, I will, if there's reference to law, I'm going to look at the law. Um, if there's specific issues that need to be addressed, I'm going to refresh my memory on what is the applicable law. Um, and I often say to folks, to attorneys, um, I've read the pleadings in this matter, the motion, the response, the reply. Is there anything else I should know at this time? And I think that's an opportunity for lawyers to tell me what else I need to know but not restate exactly what's in the motion because I just said, I read that. So I think a lot of times that squanders the opportunity to say, you know, since, especially in family law, since we filed your honor, it's gotten worse, this, this, and this, and this, or as another example of what we said, there's this and, um, I, or expanding upon what cannot be written in a motion. I mean, we really do notice pleading and even in family law where um, we tend to be a little bit longer winded probably necessarily, (laughs) but longer winded in motions, there's still stuff that's left out. And so I think prompting attorneys to respond with that added information is a real um, important point. And I think people kind of sometimes waste an opportunity because they tell me what I already read. Okay. Yeah. That's good for us to know, to make sure that we're addressing the important issues with you. So obviously this year has just been crazy. There's really no other way to put it. 
Um, and in family law, we've seen so many more side effects of COVID on the aspects of custody. So I do want to talk now about some COVID-related issues that hopefully, you know, we're coming out of this, but that still means some changes in custody areas. And so um, one of the big questions we have here is schools are looking at going back in person. And some parents are concerned about that. Some parents are fine with it. What is going to be the court's approach if one parent objects to the children going back to school in person? Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of this. I think it, in the original point, it was a lot about travel. Um, and now I think it is going to be the school issue. And as frustrating as it is, um, I think it's really going to depend on, first of all, what is what is this child's need? Um, where is the child going to go to school? What are the measures that are gonna be in place at this school. Why is that parent objecting specifically? So for instance, if the child is healthy and everything is fine um, and there's gonna be five kids in the class, that might be very different from a child who has asthma um, and they're gonna be 15 kids in the class. And even if they're separated by little, you know, plexiglass binders or whatever they have, um, I need to know what are the concerns. And I think it's gonna be somewhat a la carte. I would encourage attorneys to um, talk to parents about why they're taking the position they are, because I think some parents are really concerned about the lack of socialization of their children um, and that their kids are missing out on really important moments and being a child, which is only 18 years long. Um, but on the other hand, there's reasonable positions of saying, you know, this, there are, there are significant concerns, or we have two um, folks who are, um, you know, have COVID related um, complications that could happen if they get COVID and they haven't gotten a shot yet or something to that effect. So I think it really is, as is often the case, going to be case by case. But I do think that most lawyers, if you put your hat on as a judge, which you often do, you can guess what the court's going to do. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's helpful for us to figure out what, what evidence we need to do and how to direct our clients. So um, hopefully, again, this won't be an issue for long, but one of the big things that has come up is one parent's really following COVID restrictions, one parent isn't, and they're still doing time sharing. Is the court inclined to change custody either temporarily or permanently because one parent isn't following COVID restrictions, for example, like traveling and then not quarantining or something like that? I think the, the focus is always on what is in the best interest of the child, right? So um, there are situations where I know as a judge, I have said, I'm sorry, I'm limiting your time because I've, we've put emergency motions into the record where you're not doing these things. I have sanctioned you. We have gone over this and you're just not acting in the best interest of your child. So if a parent in any circumstance is putting their own needs or not focusing on what is in the best interest of the child, then whether COVID or not, we have to take steps. And it could be that in this situation, it is more likely to be temporary than not. It could be, but it could also be, as it sometimes is, that this is a pattern of um, not paying attention to what is necessary and really putting your child at risk in a number of ways. So a lot of the parents that I have that have been really um, unwilling to follow the COVID um, 
there could be, you know, there's differences. Like for instance, some parents will be like, I don't understand what the problem is going to the park without a mask on. We could talk about that. But there are some who just refuse to follow masking requirements. You know, they, they take vacations left and right. They don't see the problem. They usually have had some other issues. So yeah. it's not a shock. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense and aligns with what we've seen. Definitely. So, um, one of the things now that we're on the upside of this is that it's possible there will be a vaccine for kids coming out eventually. Ha, um, has the court at all explored the issue of, you know, again, what if one parent objects to a child being vaccinated just because they are concerned about the side effects or whatever that may be and how the court would address that? I don't think the court specifically I'm sure that we all judges have thought about the fact that these will these issues will come up, but I would say the past is prologue. There have always been situations where there have been concerns about vaccine schedules, getting vaccinated, taking medications. Um, parents have been on two different sides, and the court has had to adjudicate that. And I wouldn't say that it's 100% one way or the other, but generally speaking, it is one of those factor-based analysis. But I would say as a lawyer, you know We've seen these before, not about the COVID vaccine, but about other vaccines or other medications. And the predictability, again, I think is there if you think about the factors and look at what is what is the court's gonna, court going to say is really going to be the most protective thing for this child in this situation. Okay. Yeah, that's helpful for us to direct our clients. And, you know, we just discussed a little bit of travel. So our state moved to yellow last week um, with the new executive order. And so that means that quarantining upon return is now advisory and testing should be done upon reentry to the state. It, in the past, we've experienced that judges were saying you're not going to travel to see the other parent out of state unless you take these precautions. Does that change what the court's going to rule? Should we help our clients try to settle these issues now so that we're not going back to court and ending up that yes, travel's allowed or whatever that might be. Yeah, I would definitely encourage settling. <laughs> I think that that's probably, especially because um, I know that we haven't seen um, a huge increase in case numbers, but these, these issues become very expensive. And I think that um, it is important to figure out what's appropriate. I would say this is this is new and this is different. And you know, the court does look obviously to what is the law and what is considered reasonable at this time. So I think that that says something's different. You know, if there's if if we're red and it is everything is shut down and we're yellow, that's that is different. And so I would say that parents need to think about that. Is that different that um, you take a child who has um, significant pre-existing conditions and stick them on an airplane by themselves and hope they make it? to, um, you know, Florida, where they spend a week at, you know, Disney World, and then fly back and then go immediately. I don't know. I think that there's probably good reasons to discuss. Is that appropriate? Are there things we can do to mitigate that? Is it better to wait a year? Um, those are all factors, I think, that that um, I would encourage attorneys to talk to their clients about. Okay. Okay. Now, child support is just one of those issues that just keeps coming up. And of course, if we can talk about it in related to COVID, it's going to happen. Um, and so people now that isn't to say that people haven't been seriously affected by COVID and losing jobs or um, being laid off for a time. And um, one of the things we've seen is that people haven't always 
gone and applied for unemployment or taken advantage of the PPP loan, which really impacted people's finances and then their calculation of income. Is, has the court taken a position or have they thought about what if a litigant is refusing to take advantage of these economic aids available to them? Could in, benefits be imputed or have you seen this situation? I haven't seen that specific situation. I have certainly seen um, situations where more and more parents are saying, you know, I'm disabled and they haven't applied for disability. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that that's kind of, that might be the best um, analogy to use, which is Mm -hmm. to say, is there something right there and you're not helping yourself? Um, And I think that the law regarding imputation is pretty helpful on that front. If, um, if one looks at that, you know, it says basically, what is, what are you supposed to reasonably do? And you're supposed to help yourself and you're supposed to make good faith efforts. But on the other hand, the court is not supposed to impute unreasonable amounts. So, you know, if, if we're talking about, um, you know, getting PPE, but it's only this amount, um, or unemployment, which is only this amount, and you used to be, um, a nurse practitioner, that's, you know, that is something to consider. But I, again, I think that um, most attorneys are good at saying, um, I'm looking at these factors, I'm looking at the applicable law, and there's a lot of discretion there for a judge, but they, there is, there are hard stop rules that a judge has to pay attention to. So what is, what are those rules? How do we address this? And, and can we resolve this without expending a lot of funds, because I think as an attorney, one of the things that I really like to do was go over how much it was going to cost me, you know, for, for me to do the work they wanted me to do and go to the hearing and fight, 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 and then be set for another hearing and fight, 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 um, versus how much they would save if we modified child support um, this way or that. And it was remarkable how long it would take for them to break even. And I think that focuses the mind. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely looking at the value of what we're, we're doing for someone. And I think that kind of leads to the answer really to my next question, which is would the court temporarily change child support because of fluctuating income with COVID? But it sounds like, you know, you're saying, look at public policy, look at the law. We can figure out what the right thing to do is. Yeah, exactly. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. All right. Well, with that, we're going to go on a quick break here. And after the break, I'd like to address some of the procedural things with the court related to COVID, but also outside of COVID as well. All right. We're, we're back here with Judge Levy. So um, there have been a lot of procedural changes just especially with the limitations we have by not being able to be in person with the court. And one of the things that's been frustrating on our part as lawyers, but also hard to navigate is why is, why are some hearings, you know, via video, which I personally feel sometimes goes easier. um, And why are some on the phone? How is the court navigating that? Well, that is an excellent question. Now, obviously, it depends on where you are throughout the state, what judge you're appearing in front of. Um, I know at the first, they are using Google Meets for everything. Um, I also actually use Google Meet for everything. So um, I think I'm the only judge or hearing officer at the second that does that. 
but I use it for video when I have an evidentiary hearing and um, I use the phone when we don't. And really, I would be fine with using video for all hearings. I think that the, um, it is more difficult sometimes for um, self-represented litigants to appear by video. And a lot of our, a lot of our cases are either um, self-represented folks on both sides or one side. But for me, the evidentiary hearings, I wanna see your faces. I wanna see what's happening. And I also think it allows the flow to go better. So it really depends on who your judicial officer is. So there are um, some judges, I think, who really do not use much video. Um, and I think it's to each their own. They're more comfortable maybe with the phone um, versus the video. The reason I use Meet, um, and you might notice this if you're in a hearing with me, is I'll see all the phone numbers that are there. Um, I can see if somebody is breathing into the microphone and mute them. Um, I can mute somebody who needs to be muted. I can eject somebody from the hearing if they need to be ejected. Mm -hmm. So um, you can't do that with a 1-800 number. So that is part of why I use it. But again, that's just me. I'm also, um, and this is hilarious to my family because this is not true outside of the judiciary, but I'm very comfortable with technology. <laughs> so I like, um, I like being able to use it and all the bells and whistles that go with it, including, you know, now even in Meet, we can um, put attorney and client into a room. Um, there are some bells and whistles that go with it that are just helpful. Okay. So since you've done both video and phone, do you have any tips? You know, we saw that judge last or the attorney last week show up as a cat on the screen, which that was great. You, we all pray <laughs> that doesn't happen to us. But um, yeah. are there any tips for, you know, appearing virtually that you have? Or should we identify ourselves each time we talk when it's on the phone? What do we do? That is a really good tip. So first of all, you got to remember that the court monitor cannot see you. And so um, identifying yourself, this is so-and-so um, is important. It's also important for your record, just to be clear. Um, so you wanna make sure that the monitor is identifying correctly who is speaking. So um, the, and, and we can rely somewhat on the, them knowing voices after a while, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet on it. So do identify yourself. And I would identify, identify myself if I'm on video too, because the other thing is court monitors are not generally on video. They're basically hearing you as if you were on the phone. The other thing mm -hmm. is remember when we're talking about exhibits, always remember to refer to the exhibit number, refer to the page that you're referring to and make sure that that's also clear because I've had attorneys who we share screens and show the document, which is great. But then they're saying, and now look at this and now look at that. And so I'm thinking about the court of appeals. If it goes up saying, what is this? What is that? So just yeah. remember like you would in the, in, in the well of the courtroom anyway, always think in, in, in writing, always think in writing, what does this look like in black and white? And I think if we do that, we'll all be better. The other thing is make sure that your clients have any exhibits they're supposed to have in front of them. Make sure they've practiced whatever, if you're going to do Zoom, if you're going to do Meet, any platform, they need to practice. You should practice, but they need to practice. Um, the other thing you should do is make sure that they understand how to mute themselves, that they have headphones. Don't 
be on speakerphone. If you're going to have your client in there, um, I would set up something so that there's a way of making it so it doesn't reverberate around. It makes a mess of the record. Um, so I would just test out, test out the way that you're going to use this platform. Okay. So just so we can picture where you are at, I've had some judges do the hearings from home. Other ones look like they're doing it in the courtroom. How, how does that work? How does everything get recorded? Like, how does that all happen? Well, that is a really good question. So we are all over the place. So <laughs> I am for me, I'll speak to me and then I'll speak to other judges. So for me, um, I am either at home or I am in my chambers at the office. Okay. So I'm not in the courtroom except for, um, they may be tearing down MDC next door in my office. So I may <laughs> have to relocate. And the reason I do that is because we need to wear um, two masks or an N95 mask inside a room with another person. And I just prefer the audio without the mask. And so if I'm by myself in my chambers, then the court monitor is in the courtroom. I'm in the chambers. You are all where you are. And that's how um, we're separated. Some judges are always at home. Um, they don't go into the office depending on where they are through the state. Some judges are always in their courtrooms and some are a mix. Um, I know some judges who sometimes in the courtroom, sometimes in the chambers, sometimes at home, just kind of wherever they think is the right spot to be for that day, depending. Um, I like being in my chambers because I have multiple screens and a whole setup so I can see all kinds of information. What I would say is the monitor is either at home or in the courtroom and they plug into our audio stream and get that information um, directly from mm -hmm. the recording. Okay, so even if the court is cut, closed down or a COVID case or something, you guys could still continue to have hearings. So we could but we have been told we can't. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. In fact, we were um, evacuated from um, the building and I was think, saying, well, uh, could we just all start off at home? And we were told, no, it's really important when the court is closed, be it a snow day or otherwise. Could we? Sure. Can we? No. Okay. Okay. That helps us understand as well. Um, so that speaking of in the future, in some ways, there's lots of positive things that have come out of these virtual hearings. It does seem like, you know, we can get more things done sometimes quicker. Um, have you all discussed if this might be a permanent part of the system after COVID? We have. We've talked a bit about um, what could be done to um, adopt what we like and what we don't like. First of all, I think um, for a long time, there has been a real reticence to rely on some of the technology that we have around us just because we never did before. The incredible upheaval that happened when the court went entirely um, digital for document filing by attorneys was pretty, pretty hardcore hard for some folks. Um, so, this, but this was, I think, a necessary um, pulling the Band-Aid off to get to the next level for a lot of things. I do think that perhaps having some hearings uh, remotely in the future would probably not be super problematic. I think some judges feel like 
there needs to be a stipulation on both sides to do that. Some mm -hmm. judges feel like, you know, if it's a status conference or a pretrial hearing, I don't see why um, it should be so expensive for folks, you know, to have your attorney truck down and, um, you know, not be available for the next phone call that they have at their office. Why not just do it on the phone? So I think there's something, something to be said for moving us into the 21st century. Yeah. Yeah. It is sad that it took this to get there, but it is interesting, the changes that it's brought about. So, you know, as we discussed previously, the custody really has become an issue with COVID that just seems like things got a little bit um, more contentious. And of course, domestic violence seems to have increased as well. So that has um, played a huge role in domestic violence hearing officers. So, and sometimes they've had to address custody issues around the state. It seems like different hearing officers have different roles. Can you help us understand what role domestic violence hearing officers have in the second maybe versus other areas and, and what the overlap with custody matters is? Certainly. So I would just stress that obviously it's important no matter what that um, we do not use the domestic violence system to um, deal with custody issues that should be dealt with in front of a judge. That is a huge pet peeve because it not only does it clog up our system, but I think it causes, um, can cause significant negative impacts upon children. But that setting that aside, um, as to the custody issues, the domestic violence um, hear, hearing officers at the second, and I'm not sure what they do throughout the state, but at the second, do hear custody issues on that emergency basis, which the Family Violence Protection Act allows. And child support can also be addressed, but it is a six month limitation. So anything that they put in place is only for six months. After that time period, it expires by law. So you can have an order of protection that is until 2026, but your custody attachment is only for six months. So it is really it behooves anybody who wants it addressed on a non-emergency basis, which is the whole point behind that, which is I'm limiting contact between two adults or maybe adult and a child. What does the contact look like for the next six months or until they can get back into court in the DM case? And I okay. think that's part of what I would encourage is just remember your DM judge is going to take a lot more time and try and figure out what do we do? We've got, you know, supervised visitation for two hours a week right now. What are we going to do to, is that appropriate? Is that working? Can we go to something else? But for DV hearing officers not to address that is a problematic because kids are often involved and, and we need to make sure that if they're supposed to and should see both parents, if that's what is in their best interest, that there be a way to do that that is safe. Okay. So am I understanding correctly that even if a, say a six month order is put in place, it's still okay for us to still file in the DM and have that heard hopefully before the six months is over to address custody in the DM. I think that's not a problem. I think, okay. you know, I mean, it is a temporary, it is temporary and it's in its um, position. You know, that's what it's supposed to be. It's only six months long. So if you need to address it in the DM division and say, this is what we're doing right now. This isn't working because, or this is working. Can it be adopted on a full-time basis or something like that? I think that's what you're looking at. If you're looking at preclusion doctrines and things like that, I'm not going to get into that. But what I would say is 
we really do have to, the DV division is for emergency situations. The DM division is for addressing custody in the long term. Okay. So, um, you know, obviously DV hearing officers aren't necessarily getting as long to hear cases, as you said, and they aren't getting to have long hearings. Theirs are usually 30 minutes or less. And sometimes we not may not be able to present all the evidence. If a, an attorney feels that maybe somebody overstepped in terms of what, what ruling was made or recommendation was made, or maybe feels the court needs more information, what would your recommendation be for us to approach that? Well, I can't make a specific recommendation, but I can say, look at the law. I mean, there's if, if a decision was made, is it appropriate to file objections? If a decision was made, is it appropriate to bring it to the DM judge for a different, you know, on a different issue can't um, set aside? What the, um, the decision is the decision if, if you don't file objections. But what I would say is don't forget that you're lawyers and that you know how to address this and don't get stuck. Um, you know, you can always file a motion and ask for assistance here or there. And keep in mind, you know, what is in the best interest of the children or what is the appropriate outcome? But I think, you know, these are, we have a time limit um, to set DV hearings for a very good reason. You do not want um, to have somebody file for an order of protection and have the temporary order issued and then wait two months to get a hearing. So we have to kind of rocket these things and get them as fast through the system and get the butt at the same time, weigh the evidence and make the de best decision based on that evidence. And I would just encourage attorneys to don't forget your attorneys and look and see what is the law and then bring it to the judge's attention if you think it's not correctly done or go to the DM court if you think that it's time to address something in a non-emergency situation. But um, seek relief based on the law. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that. Well, so let's go now um, to kind of just some advice for attorneys that are practicing family law more generally. And when you were first appointed to the event, a bench in 2016, you were interviewed. And one of the things that you said you wanted to do was consolidate hearings so that people don't constantly have to appear in court as their cases are pending. Can you talk with us just about what you've been able to do to address that and, and take on that approach? Sure. I think um, part of what I've tried to do is address for instance, I always set a pretrial conference if I'm seeing a case for the first time. They're often not requested, but I always add them because I want to see part of what we're going to do today, no matter what we're set for, is figure out where the case needs to go. Has there been an exchange of financial information pursuant to the law? <laughs> Has there not? Why not? Um, is there discovery that's outstanding? Have you decided on a facilitator? What are the emergent issues that need to be addressed immediately? And if we need to, um, we can motor through and get those things set for hearing on an evidentiary basis. But part of what I've tried to do is, um, and which you don't realize when you're saying, well, I'm gonna be a judge and this is what I wanna do. People file motions two days before a hearing. That does not give the other side an opportunity to respond. 
And it's not fair unless folks stipulate, which I always give them the option. Do you want to hear it today or do you want to wait? Because it's really important as a judge not to step on the parties who have hired attorneys for their expertise or are representing themselves and have their own way that they want to get things done. Um, so you need to be somewhat more directive sometimes as a judge and say, I really want to be able to address these issues. When can we get this set? What can we do? Can I rule as to the pleadings, which I do more and more these days if I can. Um, but also I tend to rule substantively if I can during summary hour settings, which I know that there's a division on that. And I don't think there's a right answer to it. I think it just depends on who you are as a judge. But for me, I get offers of proof. I say, okay, this is what we're going to do until now. And then you're going to have a hearing or you're going to go to facilitation or what, what we're going to do in order to address this. But it is part of marching a case towards a finish line and making sure that the issues that are really causing problems are heard as fast as possible. Okay. Yeah. The, the pretrial hearings, I feel like don't happen as often always. And so that is helpful to lay out our cases. Um, when you mentioned that you are able to rule on pleadings, I do think that's happening more and more just purely with COVID, but as attorneys, we found that it's helpful. It does move things along. What are things that we can do to help the judges have the information they need to feel like they can rule on the pleadings? A few things. One, put enough information into the pleading. Um, you know, you don't have to be too verbose, but put enough information into the pleading so that I can rule on it. Um, the other is if you feel like this is not the kind of case that needs a hearing and your notice of completion of briefing say um, it's ready for decision. I don't think this necessarily needs a hearing. Mm. And then I can see that. And that is something that is a pretty standard operation in civil and is not done in family court. But I don't see why it can't be. There are situations I have a harder time ruling on the pleadings when it's really about um, the specifics of um, what's happening with a child and it is really, I, I need to hear about exactly what's happening. But a lot of times these things are not about that and it can be addressed. You know, Do we put the house on the market? Yes, no, those can be ruled on if you give me enough information. Okay. So is it helpful if we submit a proposed order or yes. is that? Okay. Yes, <laughs> it is. Okay. It is. And in fact, I would say, for instance, for all you attorneys who are cranky, cause I did not get your attorney fee, like decision done, submit orders when you file those things. <laughs> cause I, um, you know, when a trial vacated, because there'll be one, two, three, four, five of those things will come out because I will take the time to write everything out and I will mess with your order. I rarely just sign one, but I think it's a mistake not to submit an order. Why not? Why not draft, you know, be there to draft part of at least what the judge does. And I'll take it. Usually I'll mess with it. Um, but your words are in there somewhere. Okay. Are you setting hearings if notice of completions of briefings are not filed? Only in emergency situations. I will tell you there's a few things. First of all, um, I don't know what the allergy is to rule 7.1, but um, pre-COVID, I was getting to be pretty cranky about that. Um, and I probably will revert because it is not sufficient to say, um, I asked the other side while I filed this. That is not following rule 7.1. Or I presumed that they would disagree. That is not 7.1. There's only specific motions that do not require communication with the other side for a good reason, because we want you to talk to the other side. 
if you say, for instance, I'm going to file a motion to sell the house. Oh yeah, no, that's a great idea. We need some income in here. So then why, why are you wasting time doing that? You, you've talked to the other side and it turns out there's an agreement and then you just submit the motion with a stip order at the same time. It's pretty straightforward. So I think that's a big error as to the notice of completion of briefing. I am waiting for those. They are not submitted into my, my inbox for setting until I get those generally. If there's an emergency situation, then I got to set it. Okay. You know, if I got a kid that's um, got suicidal ideation and we need to discuss what's going to happen. I'm not waiting 15 days and plus three and then stuff like that. Okay. So obviously we talked about rule 7.1 and, and following this package rule, but what do you see as common things that lawyers could do that are doing really good that you wish they would keep doing and everyone would do? And what are things that we could do better? So what are lawyers doing that are really good? I think one thing that I, I have to say is that um, dealing with all of the changes to the court system with the Zoom and the meet and the phone and everything else, I've been impressed, including with lawyers that I thought I would never see show up on a video, <laughs> figured that out, um, and, and really kind of running with the punches and dealing with it. I think lawyers have been doing a really good job of getting exhibits to the court in the various ways, making sure that they are pre-marked appropriately. Um, I've certainly had some feelings on that, but for the most part, attorneys have been really good about that. Um, I think a lot of attorneys are um, helping to um, get things filed as fast as possible. And you know, getting multiple issues in one motion is a really smart idea instead of filing three or four motions. Um, certainly the filing fees and things like that can rack up. So those are all excellent. What I think um, could be improved, first of all, um, hearsay rules. Like most stuff is not, there are so many exceptions to hearsay, especially when kids speak. And it feels like the family law bar has learned what hearsay is and never picked up any of the exceptions. And there are plenty of times where what a child says is a present sense impression or an excited utterance. They're under duress and they say something. They um, will write a um, something at the mean, the time that they're dealing with something. They will say something to a doctor. They, I mean, there are so many exceptions. And it feels like as soon as somebody says, and then my daughter said, Subjection, hearsay. Honestly, I can strike things. I know some judges don't, um, but striking just means it's not in the record. It is in the record, but it's not to be considered. Um, and it, I would say the other thing is, remember everything is a bench trial. We have no juries. So, you know, if we need to have a discussion about whether something is or is not gonna come in, um, I know how to not rely on something and realize that it is not necessarily appropriate. And it really is hearsay. So I would just say that's a big pet peeve of mine. And sometimes I say things like, well, I guess there's a hearsay objection and you just withdrew it, but I guess I feel like that could have been. And then I just stop because <laughs> it's not for me to say. Yeah. Okay. So we can help ourselves a little, maybe on the, the rules of evidence and yes. those yeah, things I would, too. I would focus on that. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm um, in terms of prep preparing our cases, whether we're going to have to litigate it or not, which you were obviously a practicing attorney, so you saw what worked, and then now you see what actually comes to you, and then what what orders you're just signing 
um, and not having to hear the case. Are there things that you can differentiate that some parties are doing that help them be able to settle versus those that are having to come in front of you? I would think that the folks that take the Rule 123 um, requirement seriously tend to be the attorneys that are um, reliably um, putting their clients' interests at heart because they are doing what is necessary to give the other side information and hopefully getting from the other side information in order to assess the case. And I think that is the biggest thing. The more information that everybody has that they bring to the judge is helpful or figuring out this is what we need to do and submitting. These are the pretrial orders. This is what we need to do. This is the issue. We're going to go to facilitation. If we can't do that, then we need to be heard on these issues prior to trial, or these can all be heard at trial. I think being organized and figuring out what is appropriate in this case comes from understanding what are the issues. I frankly don't understand why more attorneys don't just automatically send their rule 123 and a letter and then file into the record certification that you did so. Um, and frankly, there's been discussion about just refusing to set interim hearings until we see those. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that's sort of a heads up as to um, there's a patience being lost with the fact that I've had evidentiary hearings on interim where folks didn't, one side usually did not. And I just started issuing, I just start hitting people up with fees because you're wasting the other side. Um, so I think that's that's a big issue. And as for hearings that are being, you know, orders that are being submitted to the court, if it's an issue that is well um, within the decision scope of the court and you've explained it, um, I don't think there's any problem with including like the case law. Um, and I would also say attorneys should definitely cite case law. If there's case law or a rule or a statute that really assists us, do that because we sometimes don't, I mean, you're trying to make decisions on the fly as fast as possible. And so having that, you know, this look here, this has already been decided. You can do this. That's very helpful. Okay. And just including that in our motion. Okay. Absolutely. Um, So obviously you mentioned settlement facilitation and sometimes it's straightforward. We're able to agree to it and, and it's great. And other times people don't want to agree to settlement facilitation. Does the court want us to submit motions for a referral to settlement facilitation or if one side submits a year-round referral are you are is the court inclined to just sign it without hearing a motion on why we're asking to be referred well I think it depends some judges would definitely um just go ahead and sign it I probably would if there are attorneys on both sides um but it really depends sometimes I feel like it's important for me to speak to why the settlement facilitation needs to happen. And that is part of it is framing it. Sometimes I bring attorneys in and I think they're thinking like, why are we doing this? Just refer us, this is a straightforward situation. And it's because I think I need to say to the clients, you will prefer to settle (laughs) and you can hear Mm -hmm. it from me first because you don't wanna come in here and have this trial um, if you can help it. And if you can't, then I'll be here. So sometimes I do that, but generally speaking, those are, you know, yes, we will sign those. So it is probably, I would say about two thirds of the time I just sign them. And if there's a whole bunch of other motions set, then I'll stick it in there so that I can do my little speech anyway. Okay. Okay. That's good for us to know. So um, that kind of concludes my questions on just family law and the process. Is there anything 
that you want to speak to or wanted to make sure that we as attorneys hear from you today? I think the only thing I would say is, and I should have said this earlier, um, I really appreciate when y'all prep your witnesses, especially your clients, um, on what direct and cross and what it's going to be like and how you answer questions. And I feel like um, because it's sort of slapdash sometimes that is missed. But I tell you what, when an attorney has prepped their client, the case goes faster, the world goes faster. And I think that that's really important. And I would also say, you know, um, I really appreciate the family law bar. I think that this is a small, hardworking group. And for the most part, it has been a real pleasure to um, be part of this, both as a lawyer and as a judge. And I think that, um, you know, as much as this is stressful sometimes, in the end, the focus is on, you know, the, the people that you're representing and how to, how to help them. And, and that, is, that is something that is really nice. It is nice to go to work during the day and know that an attorney is going to zealously represent their client. And that's going to be um, good. And even if they lose on this issue, you know, there was a great argument made and I understood what was happening and the decision was a hard one. And, and we go on and motor through the next day. Is there anything I should know as a judge that you've heard from lawyers? <laughs> no, no, we all love okay. you. Uh, no, um, no, definitely. I think that's really helpful. And one of the things I think we're trying to do better is learn the rules. and. Um, as a young lawyer, I think that's something that I, as I'm coming up, we're seeing that the rules are being followed more and more in family court. And it's a new challenge, but something that we're navigating. And hopefully, you know, the family law bar is putting on CLEs. And I think that will be really helpful. And, and also spousal support has become a really big issue that's been more difficult to navigate. And I think um, having help from the court on that issue is something that we're looking for guidance for as well. Well, hit me up. I'd be happy to talk about it. <laughs> okay, great. So you, we're almost done here and you are um, part of so many awesome committees. And so I would be remiss not to at least get to talk about some of them. And one of the ones that I'm interested in personally, so I, I get to ask you this question is the innovations team for the New Mexico judiciary. Can you just tell us a little bit about that uh, committee and what pro like programs you're working on? And is there anything that's going to impact family law or just the court that we might be interested in knowing about? Sure. So the innovations team was started a few years ago with the concept being that um, the court needed to innovate. Um, the focus at the time was on ways of dealing with ADR, so alternative dispute resolution. Um, and that was to deal with the donut hole between those folks who qualify for legal aid services and those folks that have 10 grand to put down on an attorney um, and dealing with what is probably the majority of New Mexico, which is that the folks in between. Um, so we've done things like, for me, I've um, chaired the online dispute resolution for um, debt and money due cases. And it's now expanded into, I think it's mostly commercial um, um, landlord-tenant cases. But that is really interesting. There have been discussions about using that for family law. Um, they do do that in um, Las Vegas, Nevada, does um, family law for online dispute resolution. We have not expanded it that way yet. But it kind of is similar to the um, mediation systems that you guys are doing right now, which is sort of the virtual mediation. 
Um, another area which your dad is very much involved in is complex civil litigation courts and trying to address whether we should do something like that or have a more rocket docket view like they do in the federal judiciary where you sort of limit the amount of discovery and, and speed things through. And that actually is something I'm interested in for family law. I haven't brought it up that much, but it's kind of like, are there cases that could be on a different track than the normal track? And if so, could we have rules for that or specific agreements that attorneys agree to follow like a collaborative system, but within the court system. So those are a couple of the, um, we're also talking about court navigators, which is basically mm -hmm. just helping people get through the court system and, you know, um, and one idea is to have um, what I call super paralegals, which is um, addressing whether we should have folks who take specific classes and get specific training to essentially help people fill out forms. Um, and that was focused, it was in Washington state for family law. I think it um, fell apart there. So we're sort of stepping back and looking at it, but it's really about what are ideas um, that we can chew on to try and assist the um, judiciary in serving this population um, that is dynamic and in the fifth largest state with very few attorneys. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think those of us that participate in the pro bono legal clinic through New Mexico Legal Aid, which I know you're a big part of, see that with those people. It's so hard to talk to them and not be able to really take them all the way through. And sometimes it's just the paperwork or just those things that they need help with. But those all sound really great and we're excited for and appreciate the work that you're doing. So I think that um, concludes just our discussion today and we really appreciate you being here. I do wanna give a special thanks to the Family Law Section and the Young Lawyers Division and Morgan who uh, helped support this podcast and make it possible. Thank you, Judge Levy, so much for being here. Thank you, Lauren. I really appreciate it. And thank you to the Young Lawyers Division and the Family Law Bar Division and to Morgan. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thank you for listening. This episode was produced by the State Bar of New Mexico's Member Services Department, the Family Law Section, and the Young Lawyers Division. All editing and sound mixing was done by Blue Sky eLearn. Intro music is by Kevin McLeod at IncomTech. The views of the presenters are that of their own and not endorsed by the State Bar of New Mexico. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.